0: Hello, honeys, and welcome back. I hope you're having a wonderful afternoon, a wonderful weekend. Here in Arizona, it has actually been very lovely. Unfortunately, our rugby game got rained out for what was, you know, from a Midwesterners point of view, essentially just a drizzle on Saturday. So, alas, Saturday was not a rugby day. However... We've got some beautiful skies, some beautiful, nice warm tones going on this time of year in all of the colors, and it's finally a good temperature to wear jeans and a long sleeve shirt, so that's exciting, (laughs) but back to today's episode, we're going to be talking about the 19th century means of artistic education and how they related to artists' social lives in surprisingly deep ways. So particularly in France, the ateliers, whether they were associated with specific artists or specific institutions, became known for their quote unquote charges, which are potentially the first sort of records of masculine to masculine hazing on record. So we are going to look at, at what exactly was going on there, what these charges were, why they were a considered a normal part of this artistic training in 19th century France, and why slash how the argument could be made that these guys are the OG frat boys. Buckle in, and let's get started. Today's sources include Daniela Berman's Can Academy um, Lesson, The Formation of a French School, Ross Finocchio's article in the Metropolitan Museum of Arts website, 19th Century French Realism, the National Gallery of Arts page, French Paintings of the 19th Century, Jason Rosenfield's Met Museum um, article titled, The Salon and the Royal Academy in the 19th Century from 2004. What is an Atelier, the School of Atelier Arts Post by Mandy Theiss, updated in 2021, and the primary source and inspiration for this episode, Susan Waller's article, Academy and Fraternity, Constructing Masculinities in the Education of French Artists. Now, 19th century artistic education is often seen as very dry, pedagogical, practical, even at its time, it was truthfully differentiated by skill and by ideals or schools of training in the sense of schools like Romanticism, Neoclassicism, so on and so forth. However, one thing that is a little less known about this education and which indicates how much social standards and socialization played a hand in all of these uh education institutions is that all of them at the end of the day worked up to academy standards so no matter where you trained as an artist in france all of your technical training all of your advice that you were given on the best subject matter to choose all of that was being sort of telephoned out from the academies. So there was this sort of inherent non-didactic element in that this education was very much cherry-picked depending on what the academy wanted to see continue, what they thought was an appropriate uh, status quo. Now, in a lot of drawings from the 19th and 20th centuries of studios, you can in fact see how the students are differentiated by skill. So the older and higher level students are more likely to be working in color. So paint oils, for example, while younger or more unskilled artists are more likely to be practicing foundational techniques, such as figure drawing, um, perspective, so on and so forth. What these images fail to make reference to, however, is the social aspects of the same scenes and the power dynamics going on within them. There is a story behind the story in these images that is not referenced. I keep saying the word atelier, and all that means is studio. It's just the French word for it. Um it used to be a place where artists would train in order to master naturalistic drawing. They were often very exclusive. However, a lot of American painters who became known for their realistic drawings, paintings, uh, throughout the 19th century and early 20th centuries did their training in French ateliers. So that term has started to become a little more well known, which is kind of neat. Um, the one, the ateliers working under such names today are trying to follow in that tradition, uh, according to Mandy Theiss, by following in the the teaching styles and techniques and technical skills of old masters and in those traditions, but they're oftentimes much more equitable in access. So because these ateliers were designated places for artists to work together, to learn from each other, it makes perfect sense that they would be places where artists would learn the sort of social norms of the business, they would become prepared in the lingo and the attitudes that they would need to deal with or project in their future professional roles. So the main uh, author that I'm going to be referencing because again she's the one who inspired this this whole episode with her article doesn't necessarily agree with the emphasis on the studies of socialization in terms of the binary of academic versus avant-garde that is proposed in um, in a separate article that she references, written by someone named Bordeaux. However, she does see value in examining academic education and social formation within that academic Um, education because let's face it who among us has not had some experience at some point in our lives with school that shaped us as a person it could be good it could be bad but school left a mark on all of us and so it makes sense that an art historian would be curious to look further at you know beyond just this sort of ideological clash what exactly was going on in these educational uh, landscapes. Now, what is the Bordeaux proposition that she is mostly supporting? That proposition essentially states that pedagogy or the programmatic uh, information available in a curriculum at that time was a system of particular logics, particular norms, producing a very specific type of artist. Um, they argue that between the Ateliers and the Ecole competitions, which we will get to, a docile conformist student prepared for a career of official commissions or academ- and or academic positions Whose style emphasized technical virtuosity and display of historical erudition was to be expected. So essentially, this Bordeaux guy takes a very long time to say the shortest possible way to say what Bordeaux is saying is that the schools only, the schools and ateliers both only gave students awards, which they needed to be considered at all by future patrons, future studios, so on and so forth, if they would create work that fit very narrowly into the Atelier's or the Academy's standards of um, technical production or subject matter if they did not conform to what these judge competitions wanted to see, they would not succeed in school. And so in this way, <laughs> sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so in this way, the, the entire educational system of France um, artistic education at this time It was designed to prevent exploration and prevent difference, and that went straight beyond the canvas and into the artist's social lives as well. Although Waller agrees with Bordeaux on this point that the education was designed to create a very narrow specific type of artist who would produce a very narrow specific type of work. She starts to divert from, from them when, when they suggest that avant-garde artists and or movements were working against this style and or conformity centered system in every instance. Waller and I believe this argument is flawed in that it doesn't account for all avant-garde motivations and or expressions. Waller also sees her investigation as a counterpart to feminist investigations of women's absence and or presence in art schools. So rather than examining, for example, the interactions between women or between women and men in these contexts, Waller is looking at the social dynamics of masculinization, socialization, in order to uh, fill in the missing pieces that feminist investigations of women's absence can't necessarily fill themselves. Because we are talking about the effects of these arts education institutions on the social As well as production habits of specific artists that went through these institutions at this time, we really need to understand why ateliers and academies mattered so much, why they had that level of power. This is an age where you can only come up, so to speak, you can only make a name for yourself, learn technical and other skills either through getting an apprenticeship in an artist's atelier, or by making it into an academy. The avant-garde movements with the ability to more so learn from other artists on the ground is looming in the near future. However, it's not yet um, a possibility for an artist to not gain a formal education. The academies at this time are state-sponsored arts institutions. Almost every single nation in Europe at this time has at least one because they bring prestige and they set the sort of highbrow cultural standard for each respective nation that has one. They are extremely selective because they want to sort of show the creativity, the innovation of each nation um, in a competitive way. They're essentially all trying to out-art each other. The academies, at least once a year, would host salons. These were like state-sponsored art fairs, but you couldn't necessarily buy anything They were official exhibitions from the government, um, in the French case, established back in the 17th century, and they were meant to demonstrate this creativity, this innovation, as I said, this um, creative power of a nation. However, because they were so long-standing... They were starting to wane in their authority, their powerful authority, because they had grown stale to the public in the sense that they were so inflexible, so conservative, and had this general refusal of anything that could be considered new or evolved. So people, frankly, got bored and they started to lose this prestige, which was their whole original purpose. People also got annoyed that the salons often refused as much as admitted entrance to many famous artists. I talked in our very first episode about some of the famous ones who were skied over the years. Um, Poor Gainsborough. R.I.P. In 1863, they really begin to lose their power at a noticeable rate. The avant-gardists begin to win very visible public favor, or at least much more visibility across Europe with the Salon de Refusés, which was sort of a participation trophy version of that year's Salon. It was quite literally, a salon made up of all of the other works that had been refused, refuses, uh, from the sort of winner's circle salon. And uh, the Salon de Refusés went down in history because of some of the very famous works that were on view there, including Manny's Olympia. So the situation summarized is that by the mid to late 19th century the ateliers and the academies are still the main education route of the majority of artists and theirs are the dominant arts movements the avant-garde at this point is beginning to take shape Um, the ideas are there if not necessarily formalized um but the desire of the educational systems to produce homogenized artists is really worth a look at, especially right then as it's beginning to crumble. Waller's primary question in her article is whether the education being offered in these ateliers and academies was a process not only of skill acquisition, but also social homogenization with the Atelier Ecole, aka Atelier Academy system as the defining award system of the French arena that all of these students in the education system would be working towards. Basically, were these French state schools? sort of a state mechanism of the gender order. In her con-economy lesson, Berman points to, quote, a nationalistic desire to establish a decidedly French artistic tradition, end quote, i.e., a collection of French-born artists, unique French art culture, um, several things that one could point to as proof of a specific French art tradition and legacy. And that can be found, the proof of that can be found in the French atelier's social homogenization goals. Because in order to create these uniquely French artists and this uniquely French art culture, somebody has to decide what defines uniquely French. And in this age, it was the academies and the... Atili- yeah, mostly the academies, but trickle-down effects. So the pedagogy itself, the education, was perpetuating this specific, not altogether pleasant, <laughs> masculine character through this homo socializing by gendering the professional identity of the artist in the sort of traditional um, ways. Further support that Waller points to is evidence in the form of the concours or the competition structure of the French national academies. They acted as a measure of progress but by the early 1800s, effectively the sole focus of the Ecoles, the academies, was on the results of these concours. The competitions began at the atelier level as a sort of career preparation exercise, but artists continued to be identified with the Ecole afterwards because of specific sponsorship rules, which forever intertwined the artist's name with their academy. However, their effects went far further than classroom bragging rights. They became a key underlying structure of artistic production because one, collectors would check for awards before purchases As part of the meritocracy ideal, i.e., if you were too deviant to win prizes at these concours, you were SOL during your time trying to sell work at school and for the rest of your career afterwards. And so, too, these concours awards became a status symbol indicating the value of an artist as well as the school they attended. The combination of the ateliers and academies with the concours forms this integrated system that Waller describes of masculine genderization of the artistic profession at the time. The remaining question surrounds the formation of masculinity outside of these systems. That's an an area that Waller does not go into, but that maybe we might someday. Now, when I say homosocialization, I do not mean necessarily uh, any untoward advances. I mean instances where behavior was taught, where specific actions were greenlighted in such a way that that sort of toxic, traditional, however you want to phrase that, masculinity was encouraged um, kind of to everyone 's detriment, so the first way that this was uh, was sort of okayed by the institutions was they normalized hierarchy in male on male interactions, so as Berman in Khancono Con- states quote john baptiste martin 's small painting, a meeting of the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture at the Louvre circa 1712 through 1721 depicts a meeting of the distinguished French art academy without an artist's tool in sight. Only the ornate room situates the scene in the Louvre Palace. The choice to not show the artists at work, but rather as fashionable gentlemen engaged in sociable intellectual exchange speaks directly to the early history of the French royal academy, end quote. So Berman is pointing out the fact that we only know these guys are artists because we know that they're at the Louvre. And the choice not to show them at work, but to show them socializing speaks directly to this um, dual element of the education they're getting, both the technical and the how to embody an artist, so to speak, kind of lessons. Waller points out that hierarchy existed at every possible level, from outside the atelier, aka whether one was a member of of one, or an academy for that matter, to internal, whether one was a painter or a sculptor. The supposed status or class of a selected subject, so History paintings, for example, were considered of a higher sort of rank than landscapes, and so on and so forth. She particularly points to this sort of general power structure that reinforced this sort of hierarchical interaction. The Atelier masters and Academy directors often knew about unsavory practices, but their non-interference policies gave such practices a sort of semi-official status. So it became normalized almost from the top down to have these sorts of hierarchies and these sorts of poor treatments of those of a lower rank than one's own. Waller also points to the homosocial and homosexual continuum being very much in flux here. She focuses on how much stripping and nudity become a part of these charges beyond previous and even practical purposes. Now, keep in mind that there were rarely ever women present even as models in these days. As Berman says, quote, the academy was a male space for the most part. Then goes on to say, women artists were barred by propriety from studying the male nude figure, a core aspect of academic training, end quote. So there's this interestingly exclusively male element to the whole thing that is low-key kind of gay, but it's also reminiscent of hazing today in the sense that it's about proving oneself as one of the guys, even if that means exposing oneself or being vulnerable under pressure in an uncomfortable way. And with that, we circle right back around to the parallels of the quote-unquote charges in these ateliers and academies and the practices of hazing as socialization that can be found on many college campuses uh, with, with Greek life these days, though they are getting better at it. It is still, you know, there's still initiation processes in many social groups across the U.S. Well, anyway, parallel processes. How it would go is, in the Atelier case, the nouveaux, a.k.a. the newbies, would receive a somewhat genuine welcome. Then they would be introduced with some degree of mockery to make it clear that they had a lower status than everyone else who had been there for a longer period of time. This mockery varied um, at some points, or some ateliers, I should say. It involved stripping on the spot. Others required singing a little song, doing a little dance, although not quite making any love. After this first incoming incident, it was common to be treated not unlike an unpaid intern. The nouveau would be expected to do everything from cleaning up brushes and palettes to getting coffee, literally getting coffee and pastries and anything really that the higher level students or Uh, teachers so on asked for it was nouveau's job to get until a new person to haze a new nouveau came along then participation in their hazing was expected of the now old nouveau the severity of the charges depended on exactly which atelier or academy one was attending for example Ingres, who happens to have a little more of a famous reputation in art history, his studio was rumored to be less brutal than Delaroche, who is a little less famous. Either way, the charges took on new levels during the July Monarchy, because after 1863, the private schools' reorganization into atelier style. Um, school spaces included this same transition into Atelier style socialization, so they began practicing the charges as well. Regardless, the charges were often humiliating. In the French schools, they were explicitly a means to eliminate deviancy through harassment and career blocking. The director of the French Academy at one point said that the actions of the quote unquote charges included quote teasing, aggravation, harassing, and even, it must be said, rough handling and assaults end quote. Though one can easily imagine a Hamilton esque series of hilarious jokes featuring fancy guys in rib-high breeches performing silly acts, it's clear that the charges were actually pretty serious. Though they often included harmless bits like singing and buying rounds, they really could be much worse or escalate to worse. And They were normalized to the point that often only foreign students even bothered to write home about them. That in and of itself proves Waller's point that the inherent hierarchies within these academies and ateliers allowed for such power dynamics to arise in the socialization and social interactions of artists in those spaces especially in maleness or masculinity-dominated ways. What's interesting is Waller points to how, quote, obligatory exhibitionism and voyeurism, end quote, in many ateliers turned at this point from an expected, normalized part of figure drawing, wherein everyone took turns disrobing in order to gain uh, exposure, that was probably a poor choice of words, but in order to have the opportunity to view many different body types, in order to practice drawing many different body types into a specifically humiliating social practice. Waller ties this back to Freud's ideas of scopophilia, essentially this forced nudity acts as a confirmation against the castration anxieties of the male-dominated social environment in which these new artists are attempting to enter. Waller, referring back to the hierarchy, suggests that there will always be a power imbalance based on the desire to uphold certain powers and privileges that the anciens or the higher ranking older students have you know in their better interest over the nouveaux the younger or less skilled students one of these powers that she describes is having the power of gaze so in these you know, stripping based charges, the anciens have the power of gazing upon the nude nouveaux. However, the nouveaux never have the opportunity to gaze upon the nude anciens. But when new nouveaux come around, the old nouveaux become part of that ancien um, powerful group. Because then they too will be able to see the new nouveaux nude without the new nouveaux seeing the old nouveaux nude. So there's a shift of powerlessness to powerfulness of gaze and having the castration anxiety to relieving the castration anxiety. It's all very, very Freudian and, uh, yeah. But there is there is some potential truth to that. There is a an inherent power imbalance there that does make sense. I mean, we've all seen the Friends episode where Rachel is trying to see Chandler Bing's thing because he caught her coming out of the shower in uh, a less-than-dressed state. R.I.P. Matthew Perry. A real one. Lost too soon. However... It's it's all about that discomfort that is never resolved for the nouveaux until they gain their promotion. All of these elements, Waller argues, from the working at the lowest level of the studio upwards to the forced nudity and round buying and so on, suggest that their, quote, initiation into the atelier served to establish homosocial bonds within the atelier fraternity, sever his relations with the home, and establish him within the masculine context, end quote, in order to construct an acceptable professional identity. Given the current lack of evidence and... First-hand um, accounts. An analysis of the homoeroticism of the ateliers and academies at this time is impossible, but knowing more would help determine the degree to which that was a factor. Knowing about sexual assault and not just physical assault might help under uh, help us understand what degree. Of to what degree violence played a role in this socialization. And the imagery from this era supports that there were quote unquote charges and the notions of scopophilia that Waller raises, but do not explicitly reference homosexuality and thus cannot necessarily be used as evidence for. Or against homosexual under or overtones. Basically, that's a long way of saying that, not unlike fraternities, because we're hearing about it secondhand, it sounds pretty gay. But we don't necessarily know, because we were not actually there participating ourselves, how gay it really was. That being said, however, there was a specific type of charge that seems particularly um, suggestive. There was a certain type of charge that, quote, "parodied bourgeois honor codes, end quote by having two uh, nouveaux perform duels." However, they forced them to do these duels nude. It's unclear whether they gave them wooden swords or whether they they were forced to imagine other things as their weapons. However, the point of these entire this entire thing was to undermine the association of a duel being an honorable response to a humiliation. Because even as they're supposedly defending their honor, they're naked. So (laughs) the entire point is to try to use something that has been associated with standing up for oneself in order to humiliate someone even further. Like every era, however, the era of the charges had to come to an end, and they left the French scene along with the academies and the ateliers. This is because their tenets of exclusivity, outright misogyny, hierarchy, and so on, were incompatible with the ideals of liberty, equality, and so forth of the French Revolution. The charges, the academies, the ateliers, all come under attack and lose both power and popularity. As we all know, once the revolution took over, France was a little chaotic for some time, but the academies never came back around. In fact, many Uh, nations, European nations, that is, began to convert their academies into more public institutions or otherwise abolish them completely within the next 200 years. And none continued to practice the charges. All right, honeys, that was our episode for today. I hope you enjoyed the entertainment part of this episode in the form of my contemporary uh, commentary, and my parallel drawing. I hope you enjoyed the equal amount of art historical obscure knowledge. I am glad you joined me on this little adventure into the social lives of artists in the past. And I hope to see you all again next week when we drop yet another fresh new episode for you. Take care and stay warm. This podcast was created, produced, written, hosted, edited, and fact-checked by master's graduate Celia Bugnow. Our upcoming music will be courtesy of Kelsey Weber. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all of your favorite streaming platforms as well as your social medias.